I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we search the Bible and discover the definition of life uh, as it's revealed to us through the pages of Scripture. Uh, as we've been going through this exercise, I, I hope that this exploration has perhaps shifted your perspective a bit. I know that I have really found a, a, just a realm of depth in the words of the pages of Scripture that was completely hidden to me previous to doing this. Also, as we go, don't assume that I'm putting everything that I've found into these episodes. I'm not. There, there's a whole lot of things that I've discovered that don't necessarily fit what I see to be the the overarching thematic elements in each of these parshas, each of these passages. And so I'm not really digging into those areas that, that don't necessarily fit what we're talking about in that particular week. I myself, I've, I've only been viewing the Bible through this lens of life for about a year now. In my Bible study, since I've started really digging in in this way and meditating on Scripture and trying to discover the threads running through everything, has, has deepened my understanding just immensely. Uh, I've come to, to fall in love with Scripture in a way that I never thought was possible before. Also, I don't want you to wait for me to tell you what to see in these passages. Don't do that. If you're waiting for me to tell you, then you're not really studying Scripture on your own. You need to actually open the pages and begin to work in this exercise yourself. As you learn anything that's new, you're going to discover that at the beginning is really difficult to do, and it takes some time and it takes some, some focus to really get things just right. But then as you go, as you build that muscle and memory, as you build your awareness, as you build your, your ability to, to do this in Scripture, you'll discover that it gets so much easier, so much easier. And, uh, it becomes a lot easier as you, to, uh, to just sit down and read through a passage and really contemplate it and then read through it again the next day or in an hour even or read through it again, read through it three times back to back as you read it aloud especially. You'll begin to hear things in your own voice as you're reading it. You'll begin to recognize things that just just peg something in your memory that, that highlight something and things will start to pop off the page and some surprising things that you may not have noticed before will become just awesomely aware. So, on to this week's passage. This week we're in Genesis 14, and in the last episode we began the story of Abraham, this man of God, and in him we get our very first in-depth portrait of a man that we would call a hero of the faith. And Avram is, in essence, the beginning of a new phase of human history, one that we still are operating in. We've discussed other individuals in the past. We've discussed Adam, we've discussed Noah, and Cain, and Abel, and so on and so forth. But the world that they lived in was so vastly different than the world that we live in. Not just in the societal structure, the ancient thought processes, or honor-shame dynamic. They lived a thousand-year lives. Their world was one step from Eden. They had a closeness to God that we can only speculate about. They only had one language. The communication barrier was completely non-existent at the time. And so relating to these characters can be a bit difficult. Noah himself, we, we discussed him for a few weeks, but his story is one that occurred in a world and in a situation that epically cataclysmic proportions and that very few in history have ever experienced or even will experience. And his story ended before Babel. And so he also had that ease of communication. He had this whole end of the world type of existence that we see very, actually very popularized in a lot of uh, modern media. Much of his experience is, is something that very few of us can actually relate to. 
In fact, his story only lasted a total of four chapters in Scripture. So as we begin the story of this man called Abraham, we'll notice several things. One, the world that he operates in is, is very similar to the world that we operate in. Different languages, different people groups, nations. A lot of the things that we take for granted were part of his world. We'll also notice that as Scripture transitions from these epic scale events of history to a single man, we'll notice that the topics in the discussion will also change from some epic scale type topics to more individual and personal topics that we can relate to in our, ourselves. Things that can become very important to us. And I think that you kind of saw that last week as we talked about dedication. Perhaps the most foundational thing for a believer is being dedicated to the calling of God, being a disciple. Unfortunately, I use the word disciple and it has with it a connotation of someone who is learning from a master. And in the case of Abraham, he wasn't really learning from a master other than, you know, trying to follow in the footsteps of what God was leading him to do. But at the same time, the quality of dedication is one that's present in a disciple. It's one that a disciple will have as being completely dedicated to the kingdom of God, to God's will and God's purposes in this earth. We have to remember that if we ourselves uh, choose to sign on to the terms of the kingdom of God, that God now, in a way, owns us. We become servants, as Paul puts it, slaves even, of God. And in that, our dedication is necessary. And it will require not just your death, as so many people are like, oh, I'll be a martyr. Well, how about you be a martyr now? How about you go out and you actually do things now? That might be difficult. It will require at times that you exchange and abandon your common sense in order to do what God has asked you to do. It may require you to make a step without a plan, to move without a destination, to move at a moment's notice. No warning, just go. Go now. And that's it. Can you live in that? Can you have the faith that is required to act in that way? Oh, it's so difficult. I know it's been difficult in our own lives as we've taken steps like that. Uh, myself, my wife, my family, as, we, as we've done some stuff like that. Well, over the next few weeks, as we continue in the story of Abram, we'll begin to progress through a series of very foundational topics. And without a proper understanding of these foundational topics, without a proper definition of just the scope of what they mean, we can really twist these to mean just about anything we want. And unfortunately, I think that the topics that we're going to be discussing this week and next week they are topics that are best discussed in tandem. So if you're listening to this one, make sure you catch the next episode. Add to this that I think that many of our ideas of what we currently understand when we approach these topics is, is very limited, improperly applied in many cases, especially as the Bible has moved from its ancient origins into a modern post-enlightenment, post-industrial age society. It gets a bit muddled in the transition. Our minds have a difficulty understanding the scope of what's being spoken of here. So what are these two ideas, right? Don't keep us hanging. What are these two ideas that are so intertwined that we really need to talk about them together? Well, after dedication comes the topics of righteousness and faith. Faith and righteousness. These two things are so intimately connected to each other that discussing one without discussing the other is, is a dubious topic, dubious prospect. I'm going to attempt it because that is how, unfortunately, the three-year cycle is split up. These, these topics today and next week are split into righteousness today and faith next week. And next week we'll get more into how faith informs righteousness. We're not going to get so much into how righteousness informs faith this week, um, because we're going to try to develop the under, underlying uh, theme of righteousness as is expressed in Genesis 14. So let's go ahead and read Genesis 14, and then we'll meet back here and we will talk about it. Genesis 14, And it came to be in the days of Amraphel, sovereign of Shinar, Ariach, sovereign of Elasar, Kedor Leomer, sovereign of Elam, and Tidal, sovereign of Goyim 
that they fought against Bera, sovereign of Sodom, Bersha, sovereign of Amora, Shinab, sovereign of Adma, Shemever, sovereign of Tzavoyin, and the sovereign of Bela, that is, Tzawar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedorleomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Kedorleomer and the sovereigns that were with him came and struck the Rephaim in Ashtarot Karnaim, and the Zuzim in the Incham, and the Emites in Shaveh Keryatim, and the Chorites in the mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and struck all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwell in Chatzetzon Tamar. And the sovereign of Saddam, and the sovereign of Amorah, and the sovereign of Adma, and the sovereign of Tavoyim, and the sovereign of Bela, that is, Soar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim, against Kedorleomer, sovereign of Elam, and Tidal, sovereign of Goyim, and Amraphel, sovereign of Shinar, and Ariak, sovereign of Elisar, four sovereigns against five. And the valley of Sidim had many tar pits, and the sovereigns of Sodom and Amorah fled and fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Amorah, and all the food, and went away. And they took Lot, Avram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and left. And one who had escaped came and informed Avram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amre, brother of Eshkol, and brother of Aner. And they had a covenant with Avram. And when Avram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his three hundred and eighteen trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants divided against them by night, and struck them and pursued them as far as Chova, which is on the left of Damasek. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And after his return from the striking of Kedorleomer and the sovereigns who were with him, the sovereign of Saddam came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the sovereign's valley. And Melchizedek, sovereign of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of the Most High El. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High El, possessor of heavens and earth. And blessed be the Most High El who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And the sovereign of Saddam said to Abraham, Give me the people and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the sovereign of Saddam, I have lifted my hand to Hashem, the Most High El, the possessor of heavens and earth, not to take a thread or a sandal strap or whatever is yours, lest you should say, I have made Avram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. In Genesis chapter 14, uh, there are several things going on in this chapter, and it's all too easy to get bogged down in some of the topics that really aren't meaningful to the individual or to the community in, the, in this the history that's recounted in this chapter, it's, it's rather fascinating. There's a lot going on here that we could look to in a historical setting. And then many have done that. They've made the attempt to try to pinpoint the various kings that are mentioned in this chapter as actual historical figures. And uh, that can be useful in some way, grounding scripture in reality. But this far back in history, it's such a shaky prospect. So sketchy, because none of these names of these kings are found anywhere in the historical record at all. Every single name that's here is, is one that is unique to this chapter. So some attempt to draw meaning from the names that are attached to these kings. You know, let's discover the Hebrew meaning of Ketaleomer or Amraphel and then try to extrapolate some sort of, of extra understanding from that. That's a little mystic for me. I'm not going to try to do that. I've heard others try to use historical events that may have occurred around the same time to try and draw connections. I've heard it posited that Ketaleomer is, in fact, Hammurabi, you know, the, the king, the very first king to create a law code. We have a lot about Hammurabi. We've got over a thousand copies in the historical record of the Hammurabi's law code. I think it's a bit sketchy to say that Ketaleomer is, in fact, Hammurabi, because we haven't really been able to draw that connection solidly. We can ponder that, but I don't think it really helps us any. I've heard it said that Amraphel, you know, the king of Shinar, the king of Babylon, that's Nimrod, right? Nimrod is the king of Babylon. 
especially if we take the short view of history that I talked about two weeks ago. Remember that, where there may be an actual 700 years of extra history there that's reflected in three versions of the ancient text, and then there's what we read here, where there's only about 400 years between Noah and, and Avram? Well, if that's the case, if it's the short view, then Nimrod's still alive at this time, which means he's probably still the king of Babylon. I've heard it said, based on this short view, Jews will take this position that uh, Melchizedek is, in fact, Shem, you know, the son of Noah. Okay, that's a lot of unnecessary speculation, in my opinion. It assumes that we know more than we may actually know. Which view is right, the long view of history or the short view? Which view you take will determine whether or not any one of those is actually correct or could be applied. The long view actually solves some mysteries of history. When are the pyramids built? It's solved. We solve it with a long view. The short view, we've got a lot of questions to answer. So, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know which view is the right view. But I do know that this chapter is not affirming which kings were where when. That's not the point of this chapter. We'll get into that. Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a name that appears later in Scripture, specifically in Psalms and Hebrews. Melchizedek is an important person. and There's a lot that we can learn from Melchizedek. We're going to take a few moments and really camp on Melchizedek today. And we'll learn about the nature of the Melchizedek priesthood that both Psalms and Hebrews speak of. But again... Is it the identity of Melchizedek that's being affirmed in this chapter? Are we trying to say, oh, it's Shem? Or, or is it like Hebrews says, he is without father or mother, without beginning and end? Third, this chapter presents another issue in that there is evidence in the text that it was edited at a later date by someone unknown. We, well, we have an idea of when. We don't know who. In verse 14, we read that Avram chased the armies as far as Dan, right? And then they split. Well, at this time in history, Dan's not a place. It's not a place in the northern area of Israel until the book of Judges. In fact, Dan is not born. He doesn't exist. He's one of the 12 sons of Israel, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. We won't read about his birth until Genesis 30. Then you've got several centuries before Moses is born. And then the whole Exodus event, and then the wandering in the wilderness, and then in the book of Joshua, Dan finally gets land. But he doesn't get it in the north of Israel. The land that Dan gets is over near Gerar, what we call Gaza Strip today. And it was right on the border with the Philistines. Dan was kind of a buffer between the Philistines and the rest of Israel. That's why several of the judges came from Dan. Samson was from Dan because he was right there on the border with the Philistines. Well, the tribes of Dan, they didn't like this prospect. They didn't like sitting here. And so by the end of the book of Judges, they had actually uprooted the land that they had been given as part of their inheritance and moved to the north. They settled in the north of Israel at that point. And it's only then that Dan becomes a place in northern Israel. So this edit that occurs in chapter 14 is something that happened after the time of Judges. Somebody edited it after Judges in order to put Dan in there. Now, is it possible that God gave Moses some sort of precognition when he was writing this? And Moses, in his trance-like state as he was writing scripture, which I don't believe is the way it happened at all, wrote Dan down instead of whatever it should have been? I don't believe so. Because scripture wasn't given to man on golden tablets. That's not how it occurs. That's not what inspired by God means. It's not an automatic writing where a guy goes into a trance and just begins writing and goes, oh, what did I write today? That's not how scripture happens. We're told how scripture is written in several places. That's not it. Okay? So get that idea out of your mind if you think that that's how scripture was written. Also, if you think that being inspired by God means that there's absolutely no mistakes or that it's never been edited in history, Get that out of your mind, too. We've talked about that before. Okay? Uh, scripture itself, yeah, it's got some mistakes. Does that mean that it's not inspired by God? Not at all. It is inspired by God, most definitely. And we find that in what it is that Scripture is affirming. 
And so we got to stop looking at these very minute specifics and going, oh, well, the historical record doesn't... Nah, get over that. Let's let's look at what it is that Scripture is affirming, because we're going to find as we go through Scripture that there are several places where edits like this occurred. Exodus chapter 1 is another example that we're going to find. Deuteronomy has several places where it's very obvious that someone inserted a piece of text at a later date, that it wasn't something that was originally there. We know this because the the pronouns change from me and my to you and yours, or him and his. It, it, it's a very obvious change when you consider that. So let's stop thinking that the scripture was somehow just handed to man in, in its finalized form. That's not how scripture was made. So let's not enforce that upon scripture. That's a man-made idea. Very man-made idea. In fact, that's a pagan idea. That's, that's, that's how Mormonism is said to have started. That's how uh, many Babylonian religions said it started. That's how Hammurabi's law code is said to have come about, given by the sun god Shemesh to Hammurabi on golden tablets, in, in essence. Okay, that's not, that's not how scripture is done. It's much more nuanced than that. Let's just leave it there. We got a little bit off topic there. Let's get back on. So rather than attempting to define the specifics, which is really impossible from this point in history, let's dig into the events of the narrative in this case and discover a thread that runs through these events and connects them all together. Because this is one story, but it's not necessarily the story that you think it's telling. There's something else going on in the story. And the way that we can recognize the thread that runs throughout is we can break the story up into individual parts or pieces, kind of like we did with Cain and Abel's story in the past, where we make the puzzle. Remember that? You take the puzzle pieces, and then you try and figure out what is it that connects those puzzle pieces together. You look for the line running through all of the pieces so that you can tell that they fit together. So let's go through this narrative and then kind of assemble these pieces and see what we find. So the chapter opens with a discussion of the nine kings in these various areas of the ancient Near East. Now, the relationship that these kings had would have been one that's called a suzerain-vassal relationship. It's a form of alliance in which there's a king who is called the high king or the suzerain king that is ruling over a vast area, but the empire is way too big for him to rule, and so he has kings, vassal kings, that he sets up in various areas to rule his his outlying lands. Okay, Each of these other kings would have been autonomous for the most part, but they would have had a covenant relationship with the high king, and that covenant relationship would determine what they were or were not allowed to do in the name of that high king, because that the vassal kings were the representative of the high king for that land, for that area. So those nine kings, they would not have had a covenant with each other. It wouldn't have been a horizontal covenant. Each one of the nine kings had a vertical covenant with the high king, Keterleomer. Each of them was a king in his own right. This treaty would have required that the vassals pay tribute, that the vassals pay taxes, that the vassals give honor to the high king, that they and that they fulfill certain laws and regulations in the vassal treaty, but it, for the most part, it probably would have been pretty limited. The high king would then, in return, provide protection services for the other kings, oversee trade and functions between the various kingdoms, and there would have been a mutual defense pact as part of that treaty. If one kingdom is attacked, then all of the others will go and attack the enemy that's attacking them. Very common type of situation in the ancient Near East. This relationship isn't really something I'm going to get into right now, the suzerain vassal relationship. I'm not going to get real deep in that right now, but when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, it becomes extremely important to understand the suzerain-vassal relationship, because the book of Deuteronomy steeps the life of an Israelite, of a believer in the God of Israel, of someone who's in covenant, in this paradigm of the suzerain-vassal relationship. And that's vitally important, because when we start to view our own relationship with God, as a suzerain vassal, he is the king of kings, he is the lord of lords, but we are a nation of king and priests, right? Our relationship is with him, not with each other so much. What brings us into unity with each other is that we each have our own relationship with him. My brother has a relationship, has a suzerain vassal covenant with the high king. My sister has a suzerain vassal covenant with the high king. I myself have a suzerain vassal 
covenant with the high king. And that brings us into unity together. Our covenant isn't with each other. Our covenant is with him and him alone. Okay, so that's vitally important to understand, uh, especially in our own uh, our own walk. As the narrative proceeds, we discover that this covenant, this treaty, has lasted for some time. Thirteen years, that's, that's quite a bit of time. But then it, it breaks apart. Five of the kings, five of those vassals, decide that they don't want to be in that covenant with the high king anymore. And so they decide to change their covenant from up to sideways. They take their covenant with the high king and they make a covenant with each other to rebel against the high king. And so Ketelaomer gathers together the three kings that have remained loyal to him. So we have a total of four kings, the high king and the three that remain loyal to him. And they head to war. Interestingly enough, when he goes to war, he doesn't attack the rebels first. He attacks other nations. He attacks places that we read of in other places. He Specifically, the Rephaim, the Zuzi, and the Emites, the Horites. He attacks them first. Now, if we want to do some study into who exactly they were, we, we do find those in other places in Scripture. We find them specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy 2, verses 10 through 12, speaks of the Emites and the Rephaim, two of them that we read up here, and compares them to the Anakim. If we continue reading in Deuteronomy 2, verses 20 through 21, we see the Rephaim, and then it also gives them the name of the Zanzumim, which is possibly the Zuzim that we read up here. And then later it speaks of the Horites, who were in Mount Seir, and mentions that they were eventually defeated by the descendants of Esau, or the nation of Edom, which are the same thing. We'll get to that much later. Okay, but it also connects them to the Anakim, so who are these Anakim? If the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emites, and the Horites are all compared to this Anakim, who are the Anakim? Well, if we go to Numbers chapter 13, Numbers 13 is the story of the spies in Israel, right? They, they just left Mount Sinai, they're going to they stop at Kadesh Barnea, and they send out 12 spies to go scout the land, to go look at the land and find out basically what's the best way to attack. Ten come back and say, no, we can't do that. Two come back and say, God's on our side. Why can't we do this? The ten that come back with the evil report, the reason that they give for this evil report is there are giants in the land. In fact, there's Anakim in the land. And Anakim, in verse 33, it says, they are descendants of the Nephilim. Ah, the Nephilim, that's someone we've heard of before. Who are the Nephilim? Go back to Genesis 6. The Nephilim are the product of that union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. All right, we were on to something, right? We've got something to sink our teeth into. Let's figure out who Nephilim are. No, we have to resist the temptation to get sensational in this. Knowing who the Nephilim are does absolutely nothing for me today. Could it in some way, sometime in the future? Perhaps, maybe. But for right now, the Nephilim doesn't help me. What can help me? Well, let's figure out what Scripture is affirming. Because I guarantee you, Scripture is not affirming the nature and the identity of the Nephilim in this chapter. All right, so let's make this conscious effort to avoid that sensational aspect of the story. Because if we focus on that, we stop going any deeper. We get distracted. Let's not get distracted. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. So for now, let's simply realize that all of these nations that are listed in these verses are nations that are enemies of God. And Ketelaomer, he's attacking them. Now, it might not just be that they're nations that are enemies of God, just enemies of the natural order, right? That's what the how the Nephilim were steeped in the previous chapters, that the natural order was in some way corrupted, producing this offspring. So, Ketelaomer, he attacks these particular enemies of God, but then it continues on and he attacks other nations that will later be nations that are enemies of Israel. The Amalekites and the Amorites, specifically. They're two nations that Israel has to deal with uh, much later. 
But then there's also Sodom and Gomorrah, also enemies of God. So finally, Ketelamir turns his attention to the five rebel kings, and through an exploitation of terrain, he ends up defeating the five armies. Now, the two that are specifically mentioned as falling into the tar pits are Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, those are two places that we're going to read of later. I'm pretty sure that most of you at least know the basics of that story. We might find something in that that surprise you. But uh, let's return to Ketelamir here. In his actions and the way that he's working right now, we get a glimpse of, and we can perhaps begin to define righteousness. Right? Traditionally, righteousness is equated to right action or doing the godly thing. So if this is the definition of righteousness, we could look at Ketelamir and say, he is a righteous king. Right? He attacked the enemies of God. He's protecting covenant. He's putting down rebels. All things that God does, all things that are righteous, that are called righteous in other parts of Scripture. So he is obviously a righteous king. He's not the righteous king in this chapter. We'll get there momentarily. But he is not the one that's called righteous in this chapter. So let's get back to the events of the narrative. Well, when Ketelamir is victorious over his adversaries, he does what every conqueror has the right to do in the ancient Near East. He takes plunder. And in the ancient Near East, plunder isn't just things. It's people. People are plunder. Yeah, get over it. Slavery happened. Okay? Is it right? Is it wrong? That's not what's being discussed here. It happened. Well, because of where Lot had chosen to situate himself when he split from Abraham, he too becomes part of that plunder. Well, this fight happens, and this happens in every major fight. A refugee, someone, escapes from the fight and makes it to where Avram is, and he informs Avram of what has occurred. Hey, Ketelamir came in, he took Sodom, he took everybody from Sodom. Now, we haven't heard much about Avram. Now, if we look at the text, we've, we've just transitioned directly from one story into another story of Avram. But if we, we examine the text closely, we can see that the, some time has passed since we last saw him. We haven't heard anything about him since he split with Lot. And we're told here that Avram had made a covenant with three men, Anur, Ashkel, and Mamre. Now, likely, the covenant that was in place was very similar to the one that was with Ketelamir, other than, rather than it being a covenant with a high king, this would be more of a communal covenant, a mutual defense pact, some trade arrangements, some this is the way you'll act when you come on my land type thing. It's kind of a guess on my part as to the terms of the covenant that he had with them, but if we look to other covenants of scripture and we actually examine the historical record for ancient covenants, we'll discover that that's a very common things to put into a covenant. Let's just say that. So it's, it's the logical conclusion. Well, Avram, because of his familial bond with Lot, their, their family, for the sake of honor, because your family's honor reflects on your own, he has to go rescue Lot. That's what honor demands. It demands that he go protect his, his family. Well, this mutual defense pact then kicks in because if Avram's going to do something as part of our mutual defense, we all got to go do it. So the other men also join him to go and to chase down Ketelamir to retrieve specifically Lot. That's it. They're only going for Lot. So when the story is retold, we usually get a picture that Avram took his 318 men and they went and they kicked butt. It was just Abraham. This is 318 men, and they defeated those four armies that had just won. It's not quite accurate, because there's three other guys, right? Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. We forget about those three guys. Each of those three guys would have had trained men as well. So hidden here, in the aftermath of this battle of the five armies versus the battle of the four armies, we've got Sodom and Gomorrah and the, their allies over here, and Ketelamir and his allies. Ketelamir defeats the five armies, right? So now you've got Ketelamir and his allies. Then comes Avram and his allies. We've got a battle of four armies versus four household militias. That's the battle that now occurs. Is it just 318 men? No, the number is quite larger than that. Uh, probably upwards of a thousand men that were part of the army. Now, that's still pretty insignificant 
when you consider that it was four national armies. But those national armies had just been through a lot of fighting, and they thought that they had won. Well, here comes a thousand guys saying, you took some of our stuff. We want it back. If we compare this battle with the first, we get kind of a hierarchy of righteousness. We begin to see that there's uh, something hidden under the text of this that's going on. The rebellious kings, at the very beginning, they're depicted as having no righteousness whatsoever. And they are faithless. They broke covenant. They paid for their failure in keeping covenant. They were killed by tar pits, defeated by the land itself. They have no nowhere to stand, right? Literally, nowhere to stand. They have no solid ground to stand on. Ketelamir, however, has the semblance of righteousness in his actions. He is destroying the enemies of God, not be, not because they're God's enemies, but because it does help solidify his position before he goes to the attack that he against the true enemy. He's got to kind of clear his his back before he can go make the main attack. And he pursued the keeping of covenant. So his righteousness from the outside it, it looks it looks good, right? But then we consider his standing in comparison to Abraham, and we realize that the righteousness that Ketelamir is exhibiting is a righteousness based on human or pagan worldview. Avram, on the other hand, has a righteousness that's based on something larger. So I can hear you now going, Aaron, what are you getting on about? We've read this chapter. I've read this chapter many times. I've never once seen the word righteousness in this chapter. It's not there. Or is it? Sometimes it's hidden. And that's where this next part of the story comes in. The idea of righteousness that's present in this chapter is introduced and it appears with this mysterious and enigmatic character known as Melchizedek. Now, contrary to what many have, have said, Melchizedek isn't a name. It's not a proper name. It's not like Aaron or Abraham or Eshkol or Mamre. It's a title. And it's a combination of two Hebrew words. It's Melech, king, and Tzadik, righteous. Now, don't take my word for it. Hebrews 7.2 says that. It's talking about Melchizedek, to whom also Avram gave a tenth part of all. First, being by interpretation, the king of righteousness. Right there, by interpretation, the king of righteousness. And after that also, the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. So the king of righteousness, also the king of peace. Those are two descriptors for Melchizedek. Now there's a lot present in this encounter with Melchizedek that we can consider. First, Shalem, that's a place we know. It's a place we know today. In fact, it's probably the most fought-over place in the world. Jerusalem. Yerushalayim. Now, no one's absolutely sure of what the origin of the name Yerushalayim is, but uh, Shalem is a, is a word that's used in many different languages to mean peace. It's not just Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, Arabic, uh, Akkadian even all use a form of shalem to signify peace. Now, yaru itself is, is something that um, the evidence that I've seen points to an Akkadian de derivation, and it means something like uh, foundation of, or the foundation of the god of. So Jerusalem, if it is this Akkadian etymology, it means the foundation of the god of peace pretty cool, right? Anyway, we don't really know the name of that, where it comes from, but we do know that Shalem is Jerusalem, and Melchizedek is the king in the city of Jerusalem, a righteous king, and a priest of the Most High God. Now that right there, that provides a picture for us of something that's all too easy to miss, because the order of Melchizedek that's, that's spoken of in the book of Hebrews and the book of Psalms is not simply an order of priests. It is the combination of the roles of both priest and king. Wrap those together in one person, and you get a man in the order of Melchizedek. And this role is fulfilled in Yeshua, most definitely. Uh, read Hebrews 7. Read, read, read all of Hebrews. But Hebrews 4-7 really kind of draw out this idea of the Melchizedek king 
and uh, Yeshua being in the manner of Melchizedek. I think we stop there too often. We say, ah, ah, see, Yeshua is a Melchizedek king. Okay. What does that mean? Well, there's another Melchizedek king in Scripture, and I'm kind of guessing on this, but I don't think I am. I think that there's enough evidence that we can be pretty sure that there is at least one other Melchizedek king, Melchizedek priest, in Scripture. Now, the Melchizedek priests are an order of priests to the Most High God that are not of Aaronic descendant. Aaronic, not Ironic. The brother of Moses, Aaron, his descendants were to be the priests, right? It's not a Levitical priesthood, it's an Aaronic priesthood. His sons are the priests. But the Melchizedek priesthood isn't one that comes from the Aaronic line. Because Yeshua isn't, isn't a Aaronic priest. He's from the line of Judah. There's another man from the line of Judah, David. I think David is a Melchizedek priest. And there's several pieces of evidence that point to this. First of all, when David became king, he became king in Judah, right? He ruled from Hebron for seven, seven and a half years. Hebron is a city in the territory of Judah. But then later, as he's trying to bring all of the 12 tribes together as one nation under a single king, what does he do? He moves the capital from Hebron to what at the time is known as Jebus. And he changes the name to Yerushalayim, Shalom. More than likely, he's changing it back to its ancient name. But the Yerushalayim, it's not in the territory of Judah. He gives up his seat in his own territory in order to create a bond with the other, the other nations to, to enhance the idea that this isn't about what tribe you're from. We're all part of the same nation. We're all part of Israel together. Well, he brings that peace, that unity of brotherhood together under a kingship in Jerusalem. Oh, cool. Okay, David's a king in Jerusalem. All right. He's called a righteous king. The king after God's own heart, right? So he is, in one way, Melchizedek. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 4, was directed to David. We look at Hebrews and we say, ah, see, that's Messianic, the Messiah. But no, I think it's actually directed to David. It also, through that, takes on its connotation of Messiah. Now, there's a, several pieces of evidence that I think point to this. Now, if we look at each one in isolation, we could say, well, maybe there's another way that we could understand these. But if we add them all together, I think the, the chances of it being... Anything else is become so slim as to be uh, completely useless. So let's look at those. First piece, First Samuel 16. David is anointed. Okay, all the kings were anointed with oil. Uh, but so were the priests, according to Leviticus 8. So this role of king is an anointed position, just as the role of priest is an anointed position. So that's, that's important. Both roles are anointed. That's okay. There's still a separating line there, so we can, we can in some ways separate that out and say, well, that doesn't, what A doesn't equal B. So let's look to 1 Samuel 21 6. David eats the showbread from the tabernacle. That's something that was reserved only for the Aaronic priests. Now, it's an emergency situation, and Yeshua even speaks of this. You know, David is held blameless because there's a higher principle at play here. That higher principle being life. Okay, so there's two pieces of evidence, and there's possibilities for just being exceptions to the rule. Third piece of evidence, 2 Samuel 6, 14. David wears the ephod and dances before the ark. According to Exodus 28 and 39, the ephod, the shoulder garment, is a garment that's reserved for priests. Why is the king wearing it? Why aren't people up in arms that the king is wearing a priestly garment? Now, the ark isn't in the tabernacle at, the, at that point. It's being paraded through Jerusalem to get to the tabernacle as it's been moved to Jerusalem. But and the king is wearing an ephod. He's taking on a role of priests before the people, recognizing that God is the king. Okay, so, you know, there's some symbolic stuff there that doesn't necessarily, A doesn't equal B. Second Samuel 7.18, David sits before Hashem. Again, not a guarantee that David was actually entering into the holy place, a place reserved for the Aaronic priesthood. It could just mean that he sat in the outer courtyard before God. Maybe. 
Maybe that's the case. So let's move on. Uh, next piece of evidence, Second Samuel 24, 25. David builds an altar and sacrifices on it as a response to sin. Now, is he doubling down on his sin by committing another sin, by building an altar in a place where it's not authorized? Or is he perhaps a priest? Now, this doesn't mean that David himself offered the sacrifice. It also doesn't mean that David's acting in the role of the priest. It could just be that he ordered it to be done. That's a, that's a very common way of phrasing things in, in Hebrew. Okay, so we have these five things that may or may not. There's a significant amount of evidence. But then there's a sixth one, one that I skipped over because I was going in order. But in 2 Samuel 8, I skipped over one. 2 Samuel 8, verse 18, it says that David's sons were priests. What? How is that possible unless, unless the Melchizedek priesthood is something else? Unless they actually were a type of priest, a king-priest combo. That's pretty significant. In fact, I think it's really cool. If we add all of those pieces of evidence together along with Psalm 110, I think we've got a pretty solid case to say that David himself was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which then gives us even more insight into what it is that Hebrews is talking about when it says that Yeshua, the Davidic king, that was promised, is also Melchizedek priest. I think too often, as I said before, too often we take Hebrews and we simply apply it to Yeshua and leave all out all other context. But a deeper study of the text, I think, reveals to us that David, at least, was also a Melchizedek priest. Anyway, it's a bit of a detour, but if we compare this Melchizedek with David, with Yeshua, I think we can get a really good idea of what the Melchizedek priesthood is, using only scripture. So that bit of a detour can be profound, and it may challenge some of our assumptions of just what Melchizedek priesthood is and what it means. All right, so one, we had Shalem is Jerusalem, and Melchizedek is a king in Jerusalem. Two, Melchizedek means a righteous king. And with the scriptures of the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, we're given a picture of one who operates as both priest and king, not descended from the line of Aaron. And then Melchizedek gives Abraham two things, right? Bread and wine. These two items in Judaism, they become symbolic of the bounty of the earth. The earth produces many wonderful things, and those they sum up the bounty of those many things through bread and through wine, the, the physical food and the drink. And they become the blessing in many ways. And that's not just a Jewish idea, though. That's something that we see all through Scripture. Psalm 104, verse 15. Joel 2, 19. Zechariah 9, 17. Amos 9, 13. And Ecclesiastes 9, 7. All of those, all of those speak of bread and wine as the bounty or blessing of God. And they're used as symbols for that. And add to this that throughout the sacrifices, Bread and wine were usually offered alongside every animal sacrifice, and sometimes it was just bread and wine together as a sacrifice. A couple of examples of that are Exodus 29.40 and Leviticus 23.13. Now add even on top of that, that Yeshua in his final meal. He commemorates his renewed covenant through the symbols of bread and wine, the blessing of God. Think on that for a moment what we just learned about what bread and wine means. The bounty of the earth, the bounty of the physical creation being symbolized and the blessing being symbolized through bread and wine. When we approach the bread and the wine, the cup and the bread, called communion, called Eucharist, I don't like those terms. There's a lot of other ideas associated with those terms that I don't think are necessarily accurate. But the, the bread and the wine that Yeshua gave as a symbol of his renewed covenant and his blood, it's a symbol of blessing. Too often we look at it as a symbol of the sacrifice, which it is, most definitely, but it's also a symbol of a blessing from the earth. It's a symbol of new creation, even, um, when you really sit and consider it. So after the bread and wine, Melchizedek then gives Abram a vocal, verbal blessing. 
through spoken word. And it says, Blessed be Avram of the Most High God, and blessed be the Most High God who delivered your enemies over to you. Very simple blessing. Doesn't seem to be any extra floweriness. He's not promised anything. He's just saying, yeah, God helped you. You're blessed by God. Right? So how does Avram respond to the series of blessings from Melchizedek? He tithes. He gives a tenth. Not a tenth of what he just plundered, because he doesn't take any of the plunder from Sodom, from this victory. He gives a tenth of what he still has back home. He gives a tenth of everything he owns. Now that's, that's pretty important, especially as we consider our own relationship with God. And especially if we consider it as a suzerain vassal treaty type relationship, one of those requirements of a vassal is to pay tribute. So the picture that we're getting here is we're getting a picture of two righteous kings. One righteous in the ways of the world in Ketelamer. One righteous in the ways of God in Melchizedek. But then we're also getting a picture of two servants, two, two vassals under those each of those kings. We get the picture of both the, the righteous and the unrighteous vassal under Ketelamer. The unrighteous, the ones that rebel, and they're, they're completely, they're worthless. They are wiped out completely. And then we get the picture of the righteous ones who then join with Ketelamer and become victorious in their warfare, in upholding their own the honor of their high king. But then comes this picture of Avram, the vassal of the Most High God. In a way, a vassal of Melchizedek is kind of the, the way, the, the symbol that's used, the, the earthly person that's used as the symbol of, of uh, the representative of God in this passage. And he... He, his righteousness, isn't founded in anything in this world. His righteousness is found in one place. We'll get to that in just a moment, just what his righteousness is. So when the king of Sodom, he sees this, he sees Abraham giving honor to this king of Melchizedek, who did, did nothing. He just came out and gave him some food and, and a blessing, and he's like, well, I need some honor from Abraham too. And so his oily serpent nature kind of oozes forth, and you kind of see him, this greasy guy, sidling up next to Abraham, saying, you know, I'll give you all the plunder. Just give me the people. It's as if he's attempting to, to make Abraham in some way beholden to him, paying Abraham for his services rendered, and then placing Abraham in his debt in some way, as if it, the plunder is his to give. When it was taken by Ketelamer, it ceased to be his. It became Ketelamer's, and then when Avram took it from him, it became Avram's. Right? That's his right as the conquering, as the victor. But the king of Sodom is still saying, well, it's mine to give away. He's attempting to, to put himself in a place of honor over Avram. He's making Avram into nothing more than just simply a paid subject. Someone who has honor under the king. But, you know, his honor is connected to the honor of Sodom itself. He's trying to elevate himself above Avram. And Avram, he's not about to give any kind of honor to this greasy, unrighteous, <laughs> rebellious king of Sodom. This jerk rebelled against a covenant that he had made, and because of it, Lot got captured and put into slavery and captivity. And now Abram's had to leave his home and take his life in his own hands and go rescue Lot because of what this jerk did. I'm not giving you any honor. Never let it be said that, that it was the king of Sodom that made me rich. Never let that even be a thought in people's minds. Let's imagine if this happened today. Something similar. Who is it that's making you rich if you become rich? Is it the government? Is it some mogul? Is it something that you've earned through conquering your opposition or your opponents? I don't, I don't know where all that falls out. 
That's something we need to think about, right? Something we need to consider because in this situation, Avram remains pure. He seeks the peace and the prosperity of the place he's living, the place his, his nephew is living. And that's what Jeremiah says when you go into Babylon, seek their peace and their prosperity, right? When you're in exile, look out for the well-being of those around you. And Abraham is, in a way, he's in exile right now. And he does that. He looks out for the well-being of those around him. And yet, even in those circumstances, even while looking out for the good of the nation that that was host to his nephew, he sought peace with them without becoming beholden to them, without taking on their identity, or even giving much honor to them, especially the king of Sodom, especially that guy, that rebellious, unrighteous jerk. Instead, in their faces, he honors the one true God after he saves their collective butts. What a guy. His subtlety and his wisdom right here, just in this, and refusing what Sodom has offered. It's so brilliant. And it's something that we should all kind of consider. What is it exactly that Avram was doing? He's turning down wealth in order to continue to praise God and to make the Most High God the greatest one. So, all right, so let's talk about righteousness a little bit. Our understanding of righteousness in the modern West is, is lacking, as I said before. If we look to our modern dictionaries, righteousness is defined as being morally upright. According to the King James Version Dictionary, righteousness means just according to divine law. So it means, you know, keeping the law properly. According to Strong's, it means to be or to make right, either morally or forensically. Morally being, you're morally right. Forensically meaning, oh yeah, you were right. You, oh, I was wrong. You were right. Good job. Okay. So each one of those is is uh, it's it's a very simplistic way of looking at righteousness because they make righteousness into a moral action. But I think it's way too limiting to the type of righteousness that the Bible is attempting to define. In every case of those definitions of the word righteous that we just use is connected to some sort of moral action. But when society sets what's moral, then our scale of righteousness changes, it shifts. Rather than looking at it through a scale of just being morally right, or upright, or just, we need to look at righteousness in connection to covenant. Right? Righteousness is right action in accordance with an established covenant. That right there is super important. Because Ketaleomer, he was a righteous dude, if it just means doing the moral and right thing. But he's not called righteous. Melchizedek is the one that's righteous. He's the righteous king, not Ketaleomer. Abraham is connected to the righteous king, and he gets his righteousness from that righteous king. And why? Because he's in covenant with God. He's part of the promises that God has given. Being righteous in the ways of the world, in the ways of the man, it, it will count for something when you're dealing with the world, when you're dealing with men. But when it comes to righteousness before God, that kind of righteousness counts for exactly nothing. Zero, zip, zilch. Being moral gets you Nothing if you don't have covenants. You can be a moral and right and good person all you want. It's not gonna save you. It's not gonna help you. It's gonna, you're gonna end up being defeated by Abraham, by the righteous people, by the truly righteous. And, Unfortunately, as I led with, as we'll see next week, it's, it's faith that leads to this kind of righteousness. 
unfortunately, the way that it's written in Scripture, righteousness comes first, and then comes the discussion of faith. But as we'll see in the discussion of faith, it was it was the faith that led to all of this. It's kind of the underlying thread through everything that's been going on. That's not really actually called out until chapter 15. And that's the challenge we're going to face this week, is contemplating righteous action without its corollary requirement of faith and covenant. So as we approach next week, we have to keep in mind that, that righteousness, this right action, and even being in covenant is limited. If you don't have that faith, you got nothing. So as we go through this week, let's consider our own actions. Are we just being moral? Just being good people? Or can we allow that modern definition of righteousness to fade and realize that true righteousness is only righteousness that's found in covenant and in connection to the Most High God. So, until next week, and all that you do in every way, Deresh Chai. Seek light. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai as we seek life. Shalom.